Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. So before I introduce my guest today, I just wanted to talk about a few things that I've been watching on various platforms. I just finished Dirty John, the Betty Broderick story. I didn't love it. I have to say, I love the first season. I did not think for various reasons that this was great, that the acting was really good, but I just felt like the story was stretched so far. It's not really, Betty Broderick is not a Dirty John, which is kind of how they framed it, which was weird. Um, and I just found it kind of boring, to be honest. So that's my take on that. I did like expecting Amy the Amy Schumer documentary series on HBO Max. I think if you are a man, you probably will not enjoy this. It's a lot of her being pregnant and throwing up, which I related to. Um, I liked it. It was very intimate and uh, I thought it was interesting. I I don't know. It's the best thing I've ever seen, but I, I liked it. One of the best things I've ever seen is Lennox Hill on Netflix. I think this is a stupendous documentary series about a group of doctors working at Lennox Hill Hospital in New York. And it's just, it really is like a throwback to old documentary filmmaking, really feels like a fly on the wall. These doctors are so incredible. They really found excellent characters and the the stories that they tell are really moving and sometimes depressing and sometimes really uplifting. I highly, highly recommend it. I did dip into Zac Efron's new show, Down to Earth on Netflix, which is kind of like his kind of millennial echo version of Bourdain. Um going to various countries and cities and sort of learning how they do what they do in terms of the environment and in different ways. And I like it. Zach is not the brightest bulb. He's very adorable. His sidekick is slightly smarter, um, but, you know, they write him some good VO, which makes it funny and also pretty informative. So, I mean, am I saying you should run to watch it? No, I'm not, but I'm kind of enjoying it. And now to my guest, my repeat guest and good friend, Laura Richards. Laura is a criminal profiler, behavioral analyst, and victim's rights advocate. She's back on to talk about our recurring subject of serial predators and how they're portrayed in unscripted content. I wanted to have Laura back on now because Ghislaine Maxwell's back in the news. She was finally arrested in the Jeffrey Epstein case and she's being held without bail. So we are dipping into Jeffrey Epstein Filthy Rich, which is the multi-part documentary now streaming on Netflix. We also get into Athlete A a little bit, which is an excellent documentary also on Netflix. And it looks at how a group of journalists in Indianapolis exposed Dr. Larry Nasser's sexual abuse of young gymnasts. Laura gets into how our language needs to change when we talk about these cases, the psychology behind these predators, and what we can do to hold them and their enablers accountable. Okay, so we are here with our third edition of Serial Predators. That's what I like to call the Laura Aliza podcast. This is a whole book, I think, a whole chapter, you know, book and verse actually here, Elisa. It is. It is. Well, well, welcome back to the podcast, Laura. You are Zooming in from London. I am. Thank you for having me back. I'm very happy to be a third time returner. That's good, right? Yeah, you take the record. You, you leave them all in the dust. That's great. Although I just wish there wasn't so many serial perpetrators and predators to talk about. But unfortunately... Exactly where we are currently means that we have to focus on them and obviously honor the victims in the narrative too and create change. So I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about some of the work that I've been doing and uh, some of the things that people have been watching across lockdown. 
Yeah. So let's start with your work because you are just tireless. Every time I see your social media, I just think this woman, A, does not sleep and B, is just not going to give up. And I just love the tenacity fighting on behalf of women and survivors and victims. So talk about what you've been doing lately, because it's very important work in the UK and is really going to shift things. So explain it for, remember that our audience is not necessarily the real crime profile audience that is versed in this every day. Yeah, but I get it. I talk to everybody about this. I would talk to <laughs> anybody like and everybody. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're a politician, a police officer, you know, who, someone who's interested in true crime. But, you know, this is a, a matter that really does affect everyone, although people don't always think that it does touch them or affect them. So I guess, you know, for 25 years, I've worked as you say, tirelessly, because it has been a real mission, profiling and tracking violent men. And I've published quite a lot during lockdown just about that work, but how it relates to a campaign that I'm running and have been running for many years now, uh, tracks back actually to my work at New Scotland Yard when in 2003 and 2004, I was profiling domestic violence sexual offenders and serious offenders. And it had never been done before in the heart of New Scotland Yard. I was putting together intelligence analysis about who these men were within the first three months of 2001. And I found that they were very dangerous individuals when I was looking at those who had committed domestic violence, rape or serious violence on their partner. And why I wanted to profile them was because for my first five years at New Scotland Yard, I had been working on stranger rape, murder and abduction cases. And I just want to tell the story of one case that was really very influential in the start of my career that has shaped everything that I do from, from there on out. And it was the case of, they were called the railway rapists and the railway murderers. And in fact, one of them was arrested. There was a case of a number of murders and rapes, primarily in North London in the 80s. And it was the who, who done it type. We've got to find who these stranger rapists and murderers are. They were double-handed, two of them doing it together. One was arrested by a detective sergeant up on Hampstead Heath because he raped his wife at knife point. And this detective thought, just as DNA was coming in, well, if he's doing that, maybe he's harming other women. And so he took his DNA and that matched with this outstanding series. Now, John Duffy was put before the courts. He was a domestic violence rapist and he was murdering women outside the home. He was sentenced and convicted. And 10 years into his sentence, he had never given up the person that he did these rapes and murders with. And eventually he did give, it, give his partner in crime up, who was a childhood friend. And his name was David McCahey. And this is where I got involved in the operation because we knew Duffy wouldn't make a reliable witness. He was a serial killer, a psychopath, and therefore we needed evidence to be able to arrest and charge David McCahey that was independent of Duffy. And we just took a decision to talk to his wife. He was married too, with four children. And we approached her and she told us how terrified she was of him. He was the more sadistic of the two. And she didn't want to give evidence against him because she feared for her life. But we put a surveillance team on him. We ended up within months arresting him and putting him before the courts for the rapes and the murders. And he was convicted and he's in prison. Wow. 
that case was instrumental in shaping my thinking of that detective was absolutely right. If you do this to a significant person in your life, you're capable of doing it to someone you don't care about. And that was instrumental in me thinking about the men that we were hunting, the stranger rape, murder and abduction cases. And I started to look at how many of them had committed domestic violence. And I found almost all of them had, they were all on our databases. And there were other cases that were high profile, but I collected them and particularly cases I worked. And that's why when I was given a blank sheet of paper and I was asked to profile domestic violence, I was headhunted. The first thing I thought is I want to profile these men and look backwards at what they were doing. Are they committing other things outside the home was my question. And if they rape inside the home, are a larger number of them doing it outside the home? And that's really the, the genesis of the work. I tracked 450 of them. I found that one in 12 of them were raping in the home and outside the home, which is incredibly significant as a statistic, particularly at the time when we had a 5.3% conviction rate for rape, 5%. Wow. So it's a very significant number. And I wrote a report, it was called Getting Away With It. I like to keep things simple. And it's, it says what's going on right from the title. And I made the recommendation that we must proactively identify, assess and manage domestic violence perpetrators and serial perpetrators in particular and stalkers. That report was went out in 2003-2004. And Elisa, I've been saying the same thing since then. Mm. Through all my case analysis, all my work, working on stranger cases such as Levi Belfield, who raped and abused all his partners in his significant relationships. And then we had a number of blonde women being hit, uh, primarily on the head, blunt force trauma, and some of them he killed, and a very high profile number of cases, Amelie Delagrange, Marsha McDonald, Millie Dowler, and we appealed to the women who may know him, and one of them came forward, one of his partners, Joe Collins, and said, the man you're looking for is Levi Belfield. And I worked that case for a number of months. We actually caught him, arrested him within three months, which is, again, very significant, very short period of time by appealing to women who knew him. So I was using my research operationally. The, the point with these cases is that, you know, people separate out violence and particularly violence against women and girls. And they think this happens in the home, it's domestic violence. This happens in the home, it's child abuse. This happens, it's uh, an abduction outside the home. This is a rape outside the home. People don't link these things together, that if you're violent and abusive to one woman, you're probably going to be violent and abusive to others, and you're probably a misogynist, and you're probably dangerous. And I've been collecting cases and talking about it for many years, and I've taken the opportunity, whilst in lockdown, to go through all my cases, and I wrote a piece for The Telegraph, making it very clear about these links. And more importantly, whilst lockdown happened and has been happening. I've been counting women being murdered by men in the UK. I've collected my own database. And at the moment, we're at 35 women and four children being murdered oh since lockdown began, which in is a very high number for us in, Eng in, in the UK. Yes. Any idea? It's horrible. Any idea what it is here? Is there somebody checking that here? 
Well, Dawn Wilcox is tracking there. It's much harder in the States. And I did start trying to track America's cases, but it's very difficult because of reporting uh, how these cases are reported. Um, I also started to track in Australia too. And what I will say is that in both three places, uh, the numbers have increased significantly. And it's what it's something everyone should be worried about of why it is increased. And the very fact that these are not first time abusers. These are men, and I am talking about predominantly men here, certainly in the UK's cases, they're all men. They felt entitled enough that when they lost control externally in their macro world and they were forced to be uh, in their own homes, then those controlling and entitled men turned their attention to the women and children in their lives and started to even more micromanage and control them. And so when people say, oh, these are COVID-related murders, I always say, no, they're not. They are domestic abuse, coercive control murders that someone felt it was their right to vibrate at a level to control their partner and to take the life of their partner and their children. That's not about depression. That's not about COVID. That's all about control. So we have to frame these cases yes. in the way that is the true narrative about what's gone on. And most of these men have been doing this for a period of time against multiple women. And so it links very tightly into my campaign for proactive identification, assessment and management of serial domestic violence perpetrators and stalkers. And at the moment, that doesn't happen anywhere in the world as a matter of routine. And just to make one last point before I'll draw breath is that with any form of volume crime, for example, when I first started working at New Scotland Yard, if it was somebody who was a repeat burglar or someone who was a repeat uh, robber or repeat person with motor vehicles, right from the start of my career, I had detectives in the intelligence branch talk to me about prominent nominals and that we tracked down the top 10 to 20 prominent nominals and we would target them. We're covertly, overtly make their lives miserable to get them to stop. And my question was, why don't we do that for domestic violence and stalking and sex crimes? And I never got a proper answer. And I'm still asking that question that we do it with terrorists, we do it with all other crime types, bar that which affects women and children significantly. And there's no answer for why we don't do it, but we should be doing it routinely and systematically. And if we did it, we would pick up serial uh, rapists, we'd pick up serial killers, we would pick up terrorists, we would pick up mass shooters. We would pick up people like the Nova Scotia case in Canada. We would pick these dangerous men up. We would make them visible in our system and we'd make them accountable and we would decrease the number of victims. And, and that's what I'm trying to uh, have happen through my campaign. And it's currently being debated in the domestic abuse bill here in Parliament currently. It's such amazing work because part of how you've opened my eyes through all of this work is what you talk about with the language and with the motivation. I saw somebody post something the other day about Epstein and then was trying to say how, you know, this is not a political thing. It turns out that Clinton was also a sex addict. And I'm thinking, wow, he just called him a sex addict. Like that's the way we're mm -hmm. framing this. So just the uneducated, you know, how uneducated people are about, I think that, you know, Bob Weinstein called Harvey a sex addict. I mean, it's just like you have said, it's all about power, control and entitlement. 
and then how that manifests itself, which really transitions perfectly into the Epstein doc, which we're going to talk about and, and his sense of entitlement and how he was able to hang on to that with power and money, which all goes hand in hand. But I want to start with Ghislaine um, Maxwell, who was arraigned this week and thankfully, thank God, held without bail. You know, she's somebody that eluded authorities for a while. And obviously she's from the UK and you're in the UK. Talk about her and who she is, how she was so central to the sort of whole operation that was running with this predator scheme with these girls and, and what you think is what's going to happen with her. It's a lot. I know. Quite a lot of questions there, but let's unpack it. it. Let's break it down. Exactly. And, you know, I think the fact she's British actually, Lisa is important as a, as a contextual uh, point, particularly around trust and young girls and women feeling safe. And there is something about having, you know, lived in America and being British, I do see a lot, and particularly even on the podcast, people think that I can be trusted more because of my accent, because I'm British. And that's always really intrigued me. But I think what I've learned about that is that young girls and women put their trust in Ghislaine Maxwell for that very fact. And the fact that she came across as sophisticated and that she was interesting, interested in young girls in helping them. That's what they thought. And that she felt safe because she was a woman. It's actually the thing that I find the most repugnant. Uh, The fact that she was a socialite, i.e. she came from privilege. She came from money, Robert Maxwell's daughter with a, a trust fund. She could have done or been anything you know, when we think about that context, she had the, the the sky was her limit, really. She could have done so many good things in the world with that influence, with that power. Mm. And what did she choose to do? She chose to set up effectively what I'm calling a sex trafficking ring mm-hmm. of young girls and fed them to a group of men who were predators and paedophiles. And she was the person who set that infrastructure up and that network up. And that's what I find absolutely repugnant and reprehensible, given her privilege and given her potential to do so much good in the world. And what's your insight into that as a psychologist? Why? Why did she do that? That's the big question that's still, I just don't get it. Yeah, why does she abuse such a position of trust? Well, I I think you have to go back, you know, with my background in forensic and legal psychology, of course, you always go back to uh, childhood and background of where were the seeds sown. And that doesn't mean to say she didn't have free choice, because I absolutely believe she did. But when you understand how she lived, you'll understand probably some of the decisions that she's taken in that being Robert Maxwell's favorite daughter Uh, He had one of his boats named after her. She was born in France. There was nothing that she couldn't have, but there were, she was brought up in a very misogynistic environment. And he, from, you know, a young age taught her that girls and women were there as uh, objects and to be sexualized. And there really is pretty decorations to men. And she would witness her dad after lunch, take young girls into a a bedroom and have sex with them. And that was just normalized. 
Now, that's not an excuse in any way for the decisions that she takes later on as a fully formed adult. But I think that when you're desensitized, when you live in this privileged bubble, when you are made to feel that you could do anything and everything and you become so entitled that you really believe that and you are able with your peers to set the rules of the privileged and your rules go, they become law. I think that's where someone like her, when after her father died, and again, there's a big question mark about how he died, because he was into some pretty bad stuff. Yep. But she, she was vulnerable and she left the UK pretty much with her tail between her legs uh, because the whole image of the Maxmore family and who she was as a socialite who would go to the opening of a paper bag, quite frankly, came crashing down and she appeared in America and no one's clear about how she meets Epstein. I've never heard the real story about how they met, but they do. And he has a need and she seems to fit it, i.e. she's the gateway to through society. She knows Prince Andrew. She knows and is very well connected. He's not, but he has the money. He has the capital. And so I think that it's like two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle coming together and it, it's my belief that she genuinely believed that he had an interest in her and that she may well marry him. And I think that's what yeah. she was desperately seeking, marriage and having a baby. And the thing that, again, you know, why does she do the things she did? Well, when you are in love with someone and when you do want that relationship, you are prepared to do things but this is to the nth degree. This is right at the other end of the spectrum that she decides that she's going to literally drop everything and give him anything and everything. And that included giving him young girls who were vulnerable and taking them into the lion's den and grooming them and making them feel comfortable and pushing the boundaries, slowly eroding those boundaries. And I do think if it, if it weren't for her... I don't think Epstein could have accessed the amount of girls that he did. So she really did, in my opinion, play a critical role in the grooming of young girls and making them feel safe and giving them this, this false sense of security. And I think it was very predatory. And I think the two of them together were, were predatory in how they targeted the girls, how they picked them, creating this network, creating this pyramid scheme. And to me, it's, I just find it utterly repugnant and reprehensible when she really had the world at her feet. And that's what she chose to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So before we dig into more how they groomed and how it all worked, what do you think, how do you think this will play out? So as I understand it, the trial isn't going to happen for another full year. So she's, basically going to be locked up. This is a woman who came from high living, has a lot of money, used to luxury. She wants to spend her time in some Manhattan Manhattan penthouse for the duration of her, you know, this year, which isn't going to happen. So how do you think that, will she start uh, chirping or whatever they call it? And will that even start help singing? her that much? Singing, yes. Singing, singing like a canary, as we say <laughs> over here. I, that was it. I was crossing my metaphors. So what do you, how do you think this will play out? And who do you think will get implicated and will it really help her that much? I mean, she's still going to end up serving prison time, right? Well, I think firstly, just how she was arrested is very interesting. Um, oh yeah. Let's not forget. She wouldn't come she's out, been right? Under, she wouldn't come out. She, if, in fact, tried to run 
And the FBI had to, we would call it use the commissioner's key over here. When we say you breach entry, you know, you force entry into a property, you use the commissioner's key and the FBI had to do the same. She was not, as her lawyer, Mark Cohen said, happy to go freely and talk with them. She did not uh, come hiding for two years. Yeah, she was in hiding. So again, we've got the question there that she was in hiding. She was trying to fly under the radar. She was using a different name. She had bought that house with somebody who they use their name, Scott and Jen Marshall. They'd bought the $1 million uh, home in New Hampshire under an LLC, and it was a cash purchase. She had 15 bank accounts, and it's suspected that one of them had $20 million uh, 20 million in it. She had three passports, UK, US, and French passports. So again, extradition, if she had gone on her toes, as we say, extradition would have been very difficult. She comes from a network of privilege, international ties, and, you know, extremely, uh, and extraordinary financial resources. She had security detail hired by her family, as she said, and she put in countermeasures. She had her phone in foil, And she'd been under the radar for at least a year, using a different name, changing her appearance. So I absolutely found it incredulous that she pleads not guilty and she asks to be placed in a Manhattan hotel whilst awaiting trial, which again, just literally talks to the utter arrogance. And entitlement. An entitlement where you think, wow, you are on federal charges here. Understand the scale of what you are facing and your defense. You ask to basically be put into a a five-star hotel in Manhattan to await trial of cases of sex trafficking, some of the most serious offenses that someone can be charged with. Wow. I mean, that tells us a lot about her. And apparently she was very surprised and disappointed, as were her legal team, that the judge denied Shocking. her request, which I, I think mean. the rest of the world were not surprised that the request, given all of the context that, that right. I've mentioned, you know, it's not just one thing, it's multiple things. She's shown that she's a flight risk and actually everything she did spoke volumes about the fact that she was a huge flight risk. Um, so... Thank goodness she has finally been put before the court. And yes, as you say, it will be July. I think it's slated for July 12, 2021, uh, that this case will come back. So there's a fair amount of time. And of course, the big question, as you quite rightly say, is what will happen? Um, Almost a year we have. So what will happen, particularly given what happened with Epstein? And, And just bear in mind, she was arrested almost a year to the day that Epstein was arrested. So, you know, the question is, will she start to talk? Will she name names? I think everyone uh, wants to know that. And I'm sure there's a fair few people feeling sweaty or maybe not sweaty, um, as the case may be. (laughs) Wink, wink. Exactly. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, who might be wearing their traveling clothes or might not be. But, you know, there will be people feeling under pressure at this point. And I think uh, there's I a be... real concern grounded in reality that she may not even survive it, that she will, quote unquote, kill herself. You know, I mean, I think that's I didn't used to believe in this stuff, but now I believe that they've got to we really got to make sure she stays alive. Yeah, and she's a woman of real privilege, as you say, but 
some accounts I've been reading actually have said for the last year she's changed everything. So her appearance changed dramatically. She put on quite a bit of weight. Um, I believe that that was for purpose. And that's why I'm saying it, not as a judgment about her. I believe it was all part of her knowing that she needed to look different and, you know, grew her hair, but was wearing clothes that were very different from her Chanel. (laughs) And these were all countermeasures. She had a security team around her. So she understands what what you need to do. Although I would say that I don't think she was particularly sophisticated because obviously she was tracked down eventually but apparently she had moved over 36 times so she was yeah over 36 times never staying in in one place for more yeah for more than like a few nights so she was trying to avoid being found so you have to ask first of all you know why because as soon as Epstein's arrested yeah an innocent person doesn't behave like that, particularly when young girls' lives have been ruined. Mm. But I, I do think that there are questions about her mental toughness, i.e. she's lived this life of privilege, now she's in a cell, where she's actually being moved from cell to cell. So she's not actually staying in one cell because of the risks to her. Oh, that's good. They've got her in paper clothes and no sheets with the lights on 24-7. I I believe she's not actually being guarded or watched 24-7, but I may be wrong on that, but they are doing everything they can. And I would suspect that that would continue on across the year uh, to ensure the cameras are working, that somebody has got eyes on her and that there aren't objects or sheets and things that are put into the cell so that we don't end up with her not being put before the court. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, you just think how unbelievable it is that it's even took, I mean, the fact that Epstein was given a slap on the wrist and way back, you know, 12, 13 years ago, and all of this could have ended if it had been done properly. And actually if it had done properly many years before when they chose to turn their heads and you just think how many women, how many girls, I should say, how many girls had to suffer this trauma because of the way that powerful people protect each other, how law enforcement protects powerful people. I mean, it just took the fact that it even took two years after Epstein was arrested to get to her and everyone was kind of flippantly saying, Oh, where's, where's Ghislaine? You know, like that's not, that's not a joke. She, like you said, she was a partner in this ring. So it's just, it infuriates me, but I want to get into the doc. You know, we always root this in some type of unscripted programming or project. And I was a little bit of an, I felt a little bit of an eye roll when I saw this doc drop a couple months ago in, in the sense that, because I always think of you in the way that language is so important and it was called filthy rich it's Jeffrey Epstein story or whatever. And I thought like, oh, I don't want to go into his psychology and focus on him. I want to focus on the survivors. And actually, it really wasn't that. I thought, in my opinion, it was very well done. It was completely from the survivor's POV. And I thought it was actually very well done. So I want to know just as a piece of work and as a producer, what did you think of it from that perspective? And do you think it did justice to the survivors in the way that you had hoped? Yeah, I mean, with Joe Berlinger and, and various others who were EPing, female EPs as well, I did have good hopes and high expectations for this. 
Um, and I think it, I think they did a good job. You know, I, like you, um, felt the, the, the victims were so credible seeing them sat there, Michelle and Maria and Annie Farmer and Shauna, Virginia, Haley, yeah, many others, but actually some of them had never spoken out before. So yeah. them being able to sit there and by the way, this was, they started production before Epstein right. was arrested. So I think that's a very significant point that yeah. they were doing this to blow the lid off of it. And then Epstein was arrested and they did have a, a couple of women who weren't sure about talking on it. And then they said they would, and then they said they wouldn't. And then they ended up uh, talking on it. And I really commend them all for speaking out. And I think the way that it was done, uh, it, you know, it was well put together. The fact that we start with him, the hunting grounds, episode one, um, and you get to see with your own eyes just how smug and arrogant the man is. It, it really, I, I had a visceral reaction. Me too. Yeah. In that deposition, God, I wanted to punch his face through the screen. It yeah, it's very hard, thing, hard right? to watch. Um, on yeah. Real Crime Profile, as you know, I talked about part of the deposition where he's questioned about his penis in particular. Because <laughs> yes. Many people that was a lovely have, dissertation. <laughs> I have a theory about small penis syndrome, so I'm always well, intrigued. Us. Well, there's lots of cases that I've worked in particular with serial and predatory rapists um, and serial killers who have very small penises. And if you think about uh, Joseph D'Angelo, exactly the same. All the women's accounts are of a man with a very small penis. And I've worked other cases, as, as I say. So I think the small penis syndrome plays a part and it's all wrapped up in the need to dominate and have power and control over women because they can't dominate them in inverted commas sexually. And therefore it's not about the sex act. So when people say they're a sex addict and I, you know, I'm in uh, communication with a serial killer here in the UK, a case that I worked and he's recently told me he's a sex addict, that's his new thing. Uh, I know fully well that actually his issue is not about sex addiction, it's about dominance and dominating and power and control. And he's a psychopath and psychopaths work on the basis dominate or be dominated. Now Epstein had to have three orgasms a day and in his mind and therefore girls are just being brought in to pleasure him continuously and that's what grounds people and housekeepers and everyone talked about but it was much more about the boundary pushing to see what he could get away with and the gratification he got from overpowering psychologically a girl and sexually a girl or a woman and I think even the language I just wanted to pay attention to a couple of things that he said in that very opening sequence in the episode one hunting grounds where the lawyer asks him whether he's ever been convicted of a crime. And he says, yes, reluctantly, I can see he says, yes, because of course he's under oath. And he says, count one, procuring prostitution and procuring a minor for prostitution, which I, it bumps every time on me. The fact time. you cannot procure a minor for prostitution. A child cannot consent to sex or being a prostitute. But how it's wrapped up in language means that people don't even blink an eye when that's right. said. And it sounds like it's something, well, he's just had sex with a sex worker. He's, you know, paid for it. Or they might, it might be an, an, an underage woman. You know, the way that things get phrased. Right. That's called a girl. 
Exactly. And an underage girl, a minor, a child cannot consent. But I noticed the lawyer mirrored his language and kept talking about this minor for prostitution. And it makes me so angry. And I always say, please correct your language because it does matter. It matters to everybody when you say a child prostitute or an underage girl, because it means that you're rubbing out the truth of what's really gone on. And Epstein's fully invested in this new narrative. And by the way, you remember the, the, the sweetheart deal that he got? I recently found out from a number of lawyers that he was very upset. He didn't <laughs> feel he got a good deal. Right. Incredible. Absolutely and blew me away that he thought he got a bad deal, i.e. that all the allegations, all the, you know, tens of scores of girls and women who made serious allegations about him, all of that went away. And this is these are the counts that he ended up with. And he ended up in jail, but being able to leave and come and go as he chose and ple- ple- you know, pleased to do. Yeah, it was like two- a drab apartment he was living in for 13 months. Well, then he got to stay at his own place in in Florida and the police officers were on his payroll and he was still sexually abusing girls whilst he was being monitored in inverted commas as a sex offender. He was a registered sex offender and they gave him day release because he claimed that he had work to do and he'd set up a charity. I mean... No other sex offender goes against the rules and the grain, gets day release for work or otherwise when you've got serious offences. So anyway, I thought I'd just make mention of that. They don't really cover that in a huge amount of, of detail, but I do think they did quite a good job of showing, you know, the, the property situating us and, you know, particularly meeting Maria and Annie Farmer, who... Vicky Ward, and I loved seeing her on camera as well. I mean, she's a Brit, right? So, of course, I'm going to be very happy, but a very (laughs) thoughtful and intelligent and articulate and thorough investigator. And I thought hearing her point of view, I've read lots of what she's written about it before, but just hearing her put the whole narrative together was very instructive. And she was the the Vanity Fair writer. She was the Vanity Fair writer. Yeah, by Graydon Carter, who, you know, I've finger pointed before because there was an opportunity there to prevent Epstein Mm -hmm. and he chose not to. And he may hide behind it by saying it didn't meet the legal threshold. But I think all of us know that that is absolute BS. And Vicky Ward knows that, too. And I think what was instructive also just about how Vicky described things and how Annie Maria and Annie described things what popped out to me which I hadn't heard before was Maria talking about her artwork the Alice through the looking glass three pictures that she had at the art gallery and she had sold them as a you know budding artist she'd managed to sell them but uh, I can't remember the name of the art gallery owner who was her mentor said that she wanted her to meet Epstein and, and Maxwell and says that they wanted to buy um, a couple of the pictures and she would sell them to them. And she so had to sell the pictures to them at a cheaper price. And he said to Epstein said to Maria, well, I'll make it worth your while. So he was already sewing in to Maria, I can do things for you. But what was more interesting that, that popped for me was that Maria then says, you know, when I went to meet him, the next time when he called, he asked me about my siblings. 
Now, that's a very bizarre question for someone to ask when they're interested in their art. And then it struck me that Maria would say that she based her art, Alice Through the Looking Glass and other pictures, on real photographs of her siblings, her sister, Annie, but also there was another sibling who was 12 years old at the time, and she had real-life pictures of them, and she would paint from these pictures. I believe that Epstein and Maxwell were far more predatory and they understood what she, who she was basing her artwork on. And they were specifically trying to also get to the sisters and thought that if they could get Maria on board, then they would get access to Annie, which they did. And they abused both of them. But what it held the mirror up to me about was just how predatory they were in the grooming and the selection of young girls and how they went about enticing them of understanding their needs, their vulnerabilities, and the politeness of young girls. And girls are taught to be polite. We are taught to be grateful. And they knew that and they exploited that just as Ted Bundy exploited the fact that girls and women are care tend to be caring, gentle, nurturing. And therefore he understood if he approached with bandages or a crutch and was polite to them and asked them to help, he could lure them to his vehicle. And that's exactly the same tactics that we use to exploit vulnerability of these young girls of being polite, feeling grateful that they've been helped in some way and then feeling embarrassed or unable to tell them and boundary them and tell them to stop. And that's what it make, that makes it just so repugnant and reprehensible. And I really got further insight into their grooming tactics and their organized predatory behaviors. And speaking of organized predatory behaviors, the part two to this was that it wasn't just good enough that the two of them were doing this for their own you know, pleasure, I guess they thought, I don't know, but it's disgusting. But that it became this trafficking ring where they basically put these girls out with these men all over the world to what I have gathered, essentially blackmail these men because they were filming everything so that they would have the goods to be able to manipulate and whatever they wanted to get access, power, money from these men. I mean, they were world leaders, including our own quote unquote president, inverted commas, president, um, all so that they could not just keep the ring going, but keep themselves protected. I mean, what's your take on why they did that part of it. Cause that's the part that just makes it even worse than it already is that they were, they were exposed to all these other disgusting men. Yeah. Well, I think it all just comes down to power, money and control. You know, Epstein was a psychopath an indirect personality assessment reveals that he was a psychopath and everything to him was like a game boundary erosion, you know, the fact that he even got his job in the prestigious New York school that he talked his way into, everything was With a no game. Everything, yeah, he had... By Bill Barr's father, we should add, in case people don't know that. There you go. So again, the, the ecosystem that sits around someone like him, but he's a psychopath, and therefore everything is about more for me, 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 and exploiting everybody and everything. And therefore, really, it kind of kills two birds with one stone, doesn't it? 
It gives him the domination, power and control over young girls and, and women. It gives him information, intelligence. He can play people off. And again, even with Graydon, the Graydon Carter scenario with Vanity Fair, a story turns very differently and he starts to threaten Vicky Ward and he threatens Graydon Carter indirectly with the, the dead cat and the, the bullet. And he appears at Graydon Carter's workplace. He's just sat there waiting for him. This guy has got chops, you know, in the sense that there's nothing that he won't do. And he's able to talk his way into things and talk people out of things. He's magnetic. He's got charisma. You know, this is somebody who wanted to build as much power and control, because that's what is at the, the heart of it, and money and affluence and wealth. And therefore, these two were... You know, they weren't sophisticated in some senses, but in another way, they were because they knew if they brought people in, they bring them into the secret and therefore they have to then collude because they've right. got something on them. So in many senses, it ticks a lot of boxes for them. And they probably thought that they're the ones that make the rules. They're the ones and money talks. That's the bottom line. These were powerful, influential, you know, People thought, well, they thought Epstein was kind of like the great Gatsby, but underneath it all was a very sinister uh, individual who was constantly looking to exploit people and a very dangerous man, quite frankly. Yeah, it's interesting. The last time we spoke was about the Weinstein documentary, and there's so many parallels. I mean, that's what's interesting. You know, each story has its own narrative, but the similarities across the board, and I mean, I know this is what you study, it's just incredible how they match up on so many levels. Granted, you know, Harvey was Hollywood and Epstein was New York and international money and all of that. But but at the end of the day, it was the threats were all the same, you know, and they have real power to to ruin people's lives, which they took advantage of. It's just amazing that they're that Simple. I mean, in a way, it is so simple at the end of the day. It's just psychopathic, predatory behavior. Yeah, and an, an entitlement. And unfortunately, an entitlement. the more power that somebody gets, you know, the more that he could erode boundaries and with, with anybody and everybody. And people would say he was magnetic and people don't see charm as a risk factor in th this context. Mm. So, yes, the Weinsteins, the Epsteins, the R. Kellys, and unfortunately, patriarchy and the structural inequalities support this stuff. Yes. They support entitled men like them. And, you know, these cases that once they start to become visible can go away very quickly because someone's got information or intelligence and they're prepared to use it. So even when we saw Acosta with the case file and there was a huge opportunity there the case file, the evidence, and as Michael Reiter says, you know, brilliant police officer, chief of police, who really tried to do the right thing here. They had overwhelming evidence, even when they went in the Palm Beach house, even though someone had tipped Epstein off. And of course, he'd given money to the police uh, right. service, but they'd also cleared out the hard drives and everything else. But there was still enough evidence there. But cost, with Acosta, it goes away and the sweetheart deal comes in. So... For me, it still comes down to patriarchy, but it comes down to the organized crime aspect and probably something to do with security services, you know, as well, the intelligence picture uh, that made things go away and therefore 
men like Weinstein and Epstein genuinely feel they're untouchable and that they are above the law. And then it's a rude awakening if they get to that point, which both of them did, and the same with R. Kelly and the same with Bill Cosby, where the buck stops with someone else and they say, no, no, you are not going to get away with this. And then they start to spiral their world because they're so used to being in control. They're so used to calling the shots. And it's very rare, if ever, that someone said no to them and there's been any form of accountability. That's what we need to change. Right. And then it turns into PMS. I love what you call PMS, which is? The poor me syndrome. Right. You know, where the, the script gets flipped and suddenly there's a walking frame. Suddenly, you know, Cosby's blind. Ugh. Suddenly, you know, poor Epstein is used to sleeping in a room that's a certain temperature and not eating out because he doesn't like the germs and all these things that, you know, we then suddenly see the whole poor me of it all. Um, it's amazing just quite how these predators, all powerful and dominant and smirking and the way they enjoy putting their their foot on the neck of others, and in particular women. And yet when there's any form of pressure and the tables are reversed, it's incredible just how fragile they, they are and how they crumble and how they bleat and moan and whine it's really the truth of who they are. And that's why the whole power and control thing is trying to really uh, give them a sense that they are worthwhile human beings where deep down underneath it all, they're really just tiny little boys and, you know, bullies and people who need to be locked up because they're not safe to be in wider society. And that's a good transition. I want to, before we wrap, I want to talk a little bit about Athlete A. We both watched that documentary. I thought it was very well done. Of course, it highlights another serial predator, Larry, Dr. Larry Nasser, who, it's interesting because he, he fits so much of what you're saying, but unlike sort of the Weinsteins and the R. Kellys, he had this very sweet demeanor and that was why his grooming worked so well. And I was just sickened like everybody. I mean, obviously I've read about it when it came out, but I, I really didn't. And I had actually seen some of the victims speak at, some of the survivors speak out in court, but I really didn't realize how rampant it was for so many years and how the systems USA gymnastics protected him for so long. And a lot of coaches, which they really didn't get into the systemic predation that was going on all across these gyms. So I want to know your take on the doc and how you think this was able to go on for so long. The documentary was very well done. You know, it's a case that we did discuss on Real Crime Profile. You and I have have talked about it. And yes, the, the one thing I think people really need to take away is that predators hide in plain sight. They are in our gyms, they're in our workplaces, they're our neighbors, they are people that we know. Rapists do not grow off trees and suddenly just wake up and do this stuff. But there are the warning signs there. And of course, in this case, there were so many. There were so many warning signs. But again, on the surface, he did look like a, an unassuming kind of guy. And that's why people don't like the word predator, because it makes it sound like, you know, a stranger lurking out there rather than in our homes, in our communities, in our gyms. But for someone like NASA, who had perfected the art, really, if even the way he touched the girls, 
you may be forgiven for thinking that it is some form of you know physio procedure even with a mum being in the room but not right. being able to see exactly what he's doing and the fact that he is anally uh, you know he's digitally inserting his fingers anally under the guise of resetting the pelvic floor and all these things that when you see him questioned by a detective where he's saying, Oh, you wouldn't understand this. And she's like, well, go ahead. Just, yeah. you know, try me. She's obviously the a pretty, very intelligent woman, but they're the moments where you see he's probably passed it off a million times to people before he's got the script off Pat, right. but now you've got a female detective probing him. And I use that word deliberately And you can see how he is squirming and not really able to medically explain any of it, particularly when they talk to other professionals. So, yes, he hides in plain sight. It's systemic. Lots of other people knew about it. They allowed it to continue because of the big picture of getting these girls uh, to perform. And when, of course, you do get uh, one and a number of them blowing the whistle, it's them that are shamed and blamed and punished. which makes me so angry. I want to burn the house down when I see those things happening because it's so routine where girls and women are silenced and made to feel it's something that they did and that it's their shame and it's their blame when it is absolutely not. God, I feel the same way. I had a question, again, tapping into your psychological skills. What struck me about this in particular is that the athletes, the former gymnasts who were interviewed most of them did not emote that much. And, you know, I know you're an athlete and sort of a trained athlete. And I wonder, my sister is also a former gymnast, although she's more emotional, but I wondered what your take on, if if you notice that as well, that sort of compared to a lot of the other survivors that we hear from across other cases, if it struck you that there was a different affect with these women, now women, when they were recounting their stories. Well, yes, although I will say at the end, you know, and I highly recommend people do watch it, but at the end where they are giving their impact statements, I was in tears. Ah, tears. It it was so emotional and so emotional for for them because so much of this gets pushed down for so long. And I think when you're performing at that level and when really your body is not really yours. You know, you are using your body as an instrument, but when you're injured, you have hands all over you and you've been trained and schooled that way. And therefore it's incremental. You know, the grooming is incremental. Everything at the touch is incremental. And therefore it's just the next step where you can see that some probably rationalized it and minimized it and continued in that vein. And they kept their eyes, I'll call it their eyes on the prize. The big picture for them was achieving what they've trained for all of their lives. So I can understand how it's been reframed. The challenge now for them is as they are older and they actualize it and realize it and are processing it. And they're no longer those athletes. Now is the time, you know, to have EDMR. Sorry, now is the time to have EMDR and various other trauma-related therapies. Um, so yes, there there was a different effect, and I think everybody processes trauma differently. But we have to remember with them, NASA was grooming them from such a young age and was with them all the time, and he was giving them gifts and seemingly was their friend in such a harsh regime where they were treated quite frankly, brutally by all of, you know, pretty much all of the trainers. Yeah, they were. 
And therefore, it's sometimes better the devil you know, isn't it? That you, I, I believe right. psychologically, you trade things well, off. Well, they said that. They said he was actually the only one who was nice to me. I mean, that was the irony. And what's so incredible across all of these cases, never fails, is the system that enables it. Like with Sandusky, it's the same thing. It never can happen in a vacuum. You can't do this in this massive scale without having that system that enables you. And the accountability has to be there. It makes my blood boil when you think of all the people who have just scurried off after the Weinsteins and the Cosbys go to prison and they're just living their lives. They're starting new companies. They're, you know, you guys are covering the case of, well, I'm not going to say his name, but this, the guru, um, it's a podcast on Wondery that you guys are covering a real crime profile. This guy gets a slap on the wrist essentially for basically causing people to die and suffer and he's now reinvented himself, has another company doing what he does. It just makes me insane. And I guess what's the solution? Is it just holding every single person accountable till it stops? The solution is the work that I'm doing here in the form of the campaign. We've kind of gone full circle. Okay, perfect. <laughs> and see what we did there? And, uh, you know, the campaign is so important because it is about making these serial and serious perpetrators visible and accountable and we have to do that i believe the legal route where it is clearly stated that you know if there's two or three more victims um that they're taken seriously for sure you know and in these cases we're talking about hundreds of victims we're not talking about one or two or even three and so i think law change needs to happen for for 25 years i've been stood in classrooms training police officers probation officers professionals all across the world showing them case after case and everyone nods and they're horrified and we've got to change things so you can turn the light bulb on for some people but the framework the ecosystem is problematic the law doesn't help and that's why we need to change law starting with the uk but I do have my eyes on the US, the serial campaign there and Australia, because this is a global phenomenon. And it's about making sure men, because we are talking about male predators here, there's a very clear message sent to them that if they do this kind of thing, they will go on the register, the violent and sexual offenders register, and they will be held to account. And that accountability has to be at every stage. It has to be via the police. It has to be via the lawyers. It has to be via the judges has to be by the juries. It has to be us changing language so that we know there's no such thing as child prostitution or child pornography because a child cannot consent, that we don't let someone off the hook when they say it's an abusive relationship, that we say, who is the abuser? Because it's not half a dozen and one half of the other. You, we have to get better with our language and we need women in more senior positions. Because I yes. do think that when you have females and female energy, it breaks up the bro culture and the male oh. entitlement and patriarchy and the misogyny that's been going on for too long that allows the NASA situation to happen. And yes. I hope there's going to be a documentary part two about going after all the enablers, in particular the head of the Gymnastics Association, mm. who, when he walked into court, did you notice he had a limp? Oh, oh, I certainly did. He oh, looked yes. terrible. PMS, baby. There's PMS all over him. But Ugh. these men have to be held to account because it is just not bloody good enough that those enablers where it could have been stopped, 
the Graydon Carters too, I put in this yeah. because there were so many opportunities in all of these cases with Weinstein, with the Weinstein Corporation, with Bob, with everybody around him. They knew what was going on. And if they'd worked together, these men could have been stopped. But the point is that they decided to take the easy option and that easy option being do nothing and allow more and more girls and women to be abused and women's lives have to matter more. And I think all women and all men need to rise up on this. There should be public outrage and outcry because I'm so fed up with the R. Kelly's, the Epstein's, the Weinstein's, the Peter Tobin's, the Levi Belfield's, the Mark Dixie's. You know, I've been working these cases for decades. So we need to get better at spotting coercive control and manipulation and those who are charming. And so there's a lot of work to do, but I don't think it's impossible. I'm always optimistic. And I think the more as documentary makers, the you and I and uh, the Joe Berlingers, and you know, the more we can spotlight this stuff and frame it in the right narrative, because I've seen a lot of rubbish stuff come out as well. You know, when we think about how serial killers get memorialized, for example. <sighs> right. Um, you know, and I think with the more we see intelligent pieces, and I will just mention Falling for a Killer, which was uh, the cinematographer on Falling for a Killer, which is on um, Amazon. You and I both know Arlene Nelson. We love um, Arlene. Did a fan- we love Arlene. She did a fantastic job, but more so the storytelling is incredible because for the first time in a case, most people know it's not memorializing a horrific predatory psychopath who harmed and damaged and murdered so many women. It's actually told through female perspective, female lens in the context of uh, the feminist movement and what was going on at that time. And the fact that Bundy exploited women's vulnerability, that's how he got them to go with him. A good looking guy, very charismatic, but the things in that documentary I haven't seen or heard before. And I'm fed up of seeing things that make Bundy look like this good looking, charming, charismatic guy and people wearing Bundy t-shirts. Get real people. This was a dangerous, coercively controlling in his relationships and very violent man who took a bedpost and his first victim, he beat her vagina with it. If that's not about hatred for women and misogyny, I don't know what what is quite frankly. Yeah. Well. Well, I agree with you. I think the more this gets exposed in ways that people around the world can see it, like the filthy rich ducks, like the athletes, eh? it really does open people's eyes to what's going on and get them to really understand things through the lens that you've been trying to show people for a long time. So where can people follow you on social media so they can see what you're doing on RCP and what you're doing in your life to work with domestic violence and stalking? Well, they can certainly follow me on Twitter, Laura Richards 99, and I'm on Instagram, Laura Richards 999, uh, Facebook, Real Crime Profile, as well as on Twitter without the E. And then my Laura Richards website, actually, I've got a lot of information on there about coercive control in particular, about my law change uh, for coercive control and the types of behaviors and red flags. So that's www.laurarichards.co.uk. And I've also got on there under the stalking tab, a lot of my briefing materials for this campaign. And it's been an incredibly busy week because I published a 24 page report, which really encapsulates my whole career, a page for every year of my career effectively. Um, It's called Terrorism Begins at Home. Let's join the dots. And I really do just lay out the case, the evidence base, the data, the 
amount of money we spend because it's very costly when we keep having to respond to serial perpetrators in isolation and not make the links yeah about the business it's bad business yeah it makes no business sense and we clock up more victims so we spend more money so it makes no sense on any level so if people do want to learn more about the work then please check out the 24 page report i've just also written another briefing report Uh, this week that just details all the reviews and the cases that there have been. So a lot of my work's on my Laura Richards website. You can follow me on Twitter for all the latest, but this is very much live and happening in Parliament now. So it's really important. Your support would mean a lot. So hit me up on Twitter. Let me know if you're supporting the campaign and we're going to get started in America when I draw breath. Um, And there are people in Australia who I'm also talking with. So Women's lives have to matter and matter more. And that's really the the nub of, of all of my work, giving victims and survivors a platform. And those, the voiceless, making sure their voices are heard. And that's my life's work. And thank you very much for having me on the podcast to talk about it. I'm so appreciative, not just of your work. And again, I use the word tireless because... You are tireless, literally working around the clock to always fight in the midst of COVID and all the problems we're having. That's always on the forefront of your work. And we're just, I know everybody who is not only friends with you, but as a fan of your work and and listens to Real Crime Profile and follows you, everyone just appreciates how your dedication never wavers. So I appreciate you. I always appreciate you coming on the podcast to share your insight with the audience and having that singular voice standing up for women. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I certainly will not back down and I won't be silenced. Wait, I have a good quote from the other day. I'm unbossed, unbought, and unbothered. Shirley Chisholm, who was a black activist and politician back in the 70s who ran for president said that. I just love that quote. That's brilliant. Yeah, and I think, you know, the more that we can collectively unify our voices it's so powerful and that's you know a call to action for everybody to not be silent when it comes to violence and in particular violence against women and girls because it's everybody's problem it's a problem for men too for your daughters for your wives for your mothers so we all need to stand together because there are more of us who are non-abusive than who are abusive so we need to unify and, and take a stand so thank you very much for having me on Elisa. thank you for being here as always 